1: What's up, Dolph fans, and welcome into the Wednesday, March the 21st edition of the Lockdown Dolphins podcast. I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and I'm here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, we are recapping the offseason so far with Bleacher Report's Ian Wharton. He joins the podcast to discuss the Dolphins putting more eggs into the Ryan Tannehill basket, the Robert Quinn trade, the offensive line and wide receiver group makeovers, and he'll tell us why he hated the decision to to move on from and Sue, But first, I have to remind you guys, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Of course, you can find those links on the Twitter page at LinkfulNFL as well as at LockedOnFins and on LockedOnDolphins.com. Go ahead and give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts if you can. And like I mentioned, the number one blog in the On Lockdown Network, LockedOnDolphins.com. We have tons of good written content every single day for you guys up there on LockedOnDolphins.com. And of course, check out the other On Sports family of podcasts like the On Heat podcast and On NFL podcast For all the local and national coverage of your favorite teams. And I don't have any news items for you guys today. So let's go ahead and get into first down and bring on Ian on the Lockdown Dolphins podcast. That's another Miami Dolphins. And joining the show now from the jump is author of the comprehensive cornerback manual. Available for purchase very, very soon. He's at NFL Film Study on Twitter. Bleacher Reports, Ian Wharton. Ian, what's happening, my man?
0: Hey, what is going on, Travis? I'm really happy to be back on with you.
1: Yeah, me too, man. We've had a lot of stuff go down the last week. Obviously, this week has slowed down a little bit, but uh, last week was busy, so I wanted to get you back on here talk about the Dolphins' moves. You wrote a couple of articles on Bleacher Report uh, talking about best free agent moves and worst free agent moves, and Miami found their way on both of those lists.
0: Yeah, there was uh, there weren't many that had that that distinction, um, but I thought that, uh, especially to recover from you know releasing Ndamukong Sue, which... Which made the uh, the negative list for me, but I thought they recovered pretty nicely after that, and actually had a pretty solid pre-agency in terms of uh, acquisitions.
1: And we're gonna get into that later, and we're also gonna get into your cornerback stuff later, and how you envision the future of that group between you know Xavier Howard, Bobby McCain, Cordray Tankersley, and Tony Lippett. But man, you've been working on this thing for a long, long time now, and I remember doing my 2016 quarterback grades thing that I had on 3rdand10.com and how insurmountable that felt at times. And I'm sure you've hit that point a few times, but the end is near, right?
0: It is, it is. I'm winding down here, hopefully the last couple weeks of it, um, just got to do a couple finishing pages, um, wrapping everything up, putting it all together, editing it, so um, it'll be out definitely by the draft, and I'm hoping actually within like the next two to three weeks, um, it'll be, I'd love to see the finishing touches on it, um, the editing process always kind of takes Um, A little bit of time just because I want to make sure it's perfect before it goes out. But yeah, man, very close to being uh, done with this thing.
1: That's very good to hear. I can't wait to read it. And if you guys want to check that out, I'll be tweeting it out when Ian posts it. And if you want to follow him on Twitter as well, at NFL Film Study, go ahead and get that done. Let's go ahead and get down to brass tacks here on the podcast and start with a topic that I think you and I typically start with every single time we do a podcast together. Ryan Tannehill, the quarterback, the lightning rod. You're one of my fellow Tannehill brethren in the fact that you see a good player there. Now, what are your thoughts on the restructure they did with his contract, and is Gaze kind of tying himself or his career in Miami to the 30-year-old quarterback?
0: I thought it made a lot of sense um, just from the decision of like looking at his contract, especially Um, With, like, the additions that they made, they kind of reinvested into the offense. Um, I thought, and, like, the available options to them, too. It's, like, the way that the free agency quarterbacks were quickly taken off the board and, like, the money that they were given. I think that they just surveyed the landscape and they said, you know, we can save some money this year. Tannehill's going to be here, obviously, 2018. Um, They feel pretty confident that he's going to be back in 2019, um, hopefully health permitting. But um, they were able to make that commitment to him. Um, to keep him in the, in the the short term in the fold while also keeping their flexibility there in the, in the future as well because after 2019, they can move on from that, that salary very easily if they want to. Um, if they don't want to, then his contract is still pretty reasonable as long as he's playing at a, a quality rate. So I thought it made a lot of sense for the team. It makes perfect sense for Tannehill. He gets 2018 guaranteed. Basically gets 2019 uh, 50% guaranteed. Um, I think it's, you know... Pass monetarily, I, I'd be absolutely stunned if, if he wasn't in the fold um, in 2019. It's it's not a good thing health-wise for him if he's not. So uh, I thought it just made a lot of sense. And, and even if they, they look at the quarterback position this year or next year in the draft, it makes sense to have a bridge quarterback, and especially a potentially higher-end one um, in Tannehill. And, and worse comes worse, uh, you know, you, you end up having to play Tannehill for two or three more years because he's playing at a high right. level. So. I don't think that's such a bad scenario at all for Miami.
1: No, not at all. And I kind of look at it like it's a 32 game audition for him. And, you know, obviously coming off of, I think it's going to be 620 some days since his last game when he opens the season in September for the dolphins. And, you know, he's prone to those slow starts that he's had over his career. Twenty sixteen was a very slow start, and his last eight games he really picked it up, but it kind of buys him a little bit of time to get back in the flow of things and the fans aren't gonna like that, but it is what it is. But moving on, let's go on to the next piece here and talk about your best and worst free agent moves in the offseason, with the Dolphins being on both of those, and let's go ahead and start with the negative one you talked about in and Sue. Now in your estimation, could the Dolphins have made their moves work and kept Sue in that in the way they did with the offensive line, the receiver remake. And do you think they'll use a high-resource draft pick to replace him, or are they just going to roll with Jordan Phillips, Devon Godshaw, Vincent Taylor, and another draft pick maybe later on?
0: Yeah, what really bothered me about it is that they lost such an impactful talent. Um, For me, I I really just believe in investing in talent as long as you can. And the way his contract was structured, yes, it's going to be helpful um, to start getting some of that money back. Um, especially in future years, uh, to be able to get that massive twenty-six million dollars off of the cap, that's that's great in the future, and it's kind of difficult because um, you know he still has a lot of dead cap though on the on the on the situation. So yeah, it's one thing that they're going to open about seventeen million dollars with that post one post June first designation, but they're still going to be paying him about twenty-two million dollars. Um, over the next two years, not necessarily paying him, but but for cap purposes allocated to him. And that makes it really difficult. That is, um, to me, not a decision that I would have made when they restructured him two years ago. I thought that should have kept him in the Dolphins uniform for another year. Um, I just thought that monetarily that made the most sense. And really beyond that, looking at the talent, this was a guy that defensive coach. Um, that I, I'm in contact with, you know, they he really raved about him, and they they constantly talked about um, how influential he was as far as um, just for on the field being able to create for others. We saw that on the film. He's a, a true impact player as an interior rusher, and that's arguably the most valuable position on the defensive side of the field. Now, that being said. It was impossible for him to live up that contract, so that was kind. Of, so I, I understand why they did it, but I still think they could have made the moves that they made um, while keeping him, and they kind of put a spin spin on it as he left. And and of course, one coach doesn't necessarily reflect all the coaches' attitudes, but you know, from what I had gathered, that he was very liked in the building. I know players really liked him too. Um, so it's a tough loss. It's going to be one of those things that you know you're talking about. Now moving forward and looking at the rest of the group, I think that they're going to have to continue to pump resources into the defensive tackle group because now at this point, they really don't have a ton invested into the position and it's going to be critical for them to find another pass rusher amongst that group or add one to the group if one doesn't emerge. And so I would be looking in this draft class because it's a good interior defensive line class from, from people that I trust that have been looking at this class, um, they've been saying that it's a deep class and this is a good year to potentially replace, not necessarily getting another version of Sue of, uh, of him, but maybe getting a guy who can at least still be an impactful player and make it easier on everyone else, especially the young defensive tackles and work in a tandem with them. So for me, I would definitely be investing into there and I would think that, um, that investment's going to have to come fairly early in the draft.
1: Yeah, Vita Vey and De'Ron Payne just staring them in the face during the first round. That's possible options. And I, I love the depth pieces they have right now because Vincent Taylor for the limited snaps that he played, was very good against the run. Devon Godshaw came on, had a really strong rookie year for the Dolphins. And then Jordan Phillips is basically feast or famine. So you never know what you're going to get there. So putting another high quality guy next to him makes sense. But I had a question for you in regards to the cap, because I sort of fancy myself more of a, you know, film and stats and analytics type of guy. And I'm math is not my strong suit. So the post June one designation for the $17 million savings does that free up a little bit more in terms of what they can do for players in-house and extending them? Because the Dolphins have had this really bad mantra of like they letting their own guys get out and go away in free agency. And you got guys like Bobby McCain, for instance, is a big one that I want to see extended. If Jordan Phillips has a good year, you can see him get an extension after the season or maybe in-season. And then also, I guess, Devontae Parker, as ambiguous as he has been, a possible extension there. So is some of that money possibly being used to extend guys that are already on the roster that could have better futures with the Dolphins than Sue could have had?
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I think they're going to have to account for that. Um, so it kind of works twofold here because they can roll over the money that Ryan Tannehill saved them by restructuring his contract, and then they can also use that money from Sue and have a considerable pot next year to pull from, um, whether it wants to be in-house guys or external guys. And, and like you said, I'd, I would like to see them you know, try to allocate that to internal guys first as long as they earn it. Because um, at this point right now, they're going to be looking at about um, almost $70 million in cap room next year, if, you know, barring any big signings here on the way out. Um, and they can, that can continue to climb, too. So um, I think that it just it, it makes a lot of sense. That number can grow, I think, to, depending on other cuts, um, you know, almost $90 million. So, like, they've got a lot of money to work with. They're going to have the ability to get out of some other deals that we've talked about in the past. Um, So they can trim some of the fat, kind of restart a little bit. And kind of, you know, they talked about cleaning house and, and getting rid of, you know, Mike Pouncey and guys like that. Um, so the one thing is, is that they're much healthier in terms of their cap situation moving forward. Um, and it's going to be very easy to kind of trim, uh, you know, Kiko Alonso if they want to. If Robert Quinn doesn't necessarily work out, it's very easy. No dead money on his deal. That's great. Andre Branch, he's going to be at an obvious cut, I think, next year. Um, so they are much more flexible now that they started to kind of take care of those bigger salaries.
1: He is at NFL Film Study. He's Ian Wharton of Bleacher Report. And we've talked about the negative side of the Dolphins' free agency so far, letting Endomic and Sue walk. We're going to talk about positives on the other side of the podcast here at Wingfield NFL, at Locked On Fins, on the Locked On Dolphins podcast. Alright, so we talked about the worst moves and how cutting and Dominican Sioux earned Miami a spot on the list on your column on Bleacher Report, but you also have offered some praise for the Miami's for Miami's decision to remake their offensive line. And I think you were the first one to mention the possibility of Josh Sitton on my podcast back in I wanna say January in the Lockdown Dolphins podcast to bring him back to join back up with Dow Loggins and you're obviously a fan of him, but Dan Kilgore comes in and replaces Mike Pouncey as well. So do you think the the moves Miami made will pan out, at least for in the short term for them?
0: I do. I definitely think so. And, and part of this was just, I mean, especially with sitting, like, that one to me was just obvious. It's like, as soon as we started hearing rumblings that he could be out in Chicago, it just made sense. Easy scheme fit. He was going to be a natural scheme fit as far as that goes. Um, he's a veteran. He... And he kind of talked about this in his press conference where he was a willing to be a mentor to the younger offensive linemen around him, especially Laramie Tunsell. So that was huge. He's going to be an impact player. Um, he graded his Bleacher reports, sixth rated guard um in the nfl 1000 project for last year so he's a guy that's coming in he's he's that type of elite type of talent at the left guard position they got him at a good rate of money um to where it's not backbreaking. breaking it's only a two-year deal so you know the only negative with him and the only concern i would say with him is potential injuries he did get a little bit banged up last year and whenever you get it over 30 years old you know, sometimes those injuries start to you know stock a little, stockpile a little bit and, and maybe cascade, but, you know, we're hoping that's not going to be the case because they weren't major injuries. Um, but you can say that for anybody. You could say that about, you know, we saw it with Rayquan McMillan, unfortunately, where, you know, stuff just happens. Guys get hurt. There's not much you can do about it um, unless if they're just injuries like Mike Pouncey's injuries. Speaking of Mike Pouncey, I thought it was a great decision. That was an unexpected move yeah. for Miami to make that. There's a reason why that move happened late. And that didn't happen early because I think that Miami got to the point where, and we saw this with the Sue decision. The Sue decision was not expected. You know that that was one thing that it seemed like they were kind of always mindful of that they could make that decision, and, and same for Pouncy. But it was like, we're if we're if we're gonna do it, we're gonna fully commit. And so the Sue decision, I think, kind of set that uh, those dominoes up to where you then saw um, the Pouncy decision get made, where. That was a. T- I think that was a really tough one for the franchise. They they asked him about taking a pay cut. He said no. So then they just release him. He actually wanted to pay raise, which is insane. <laughs> I, I just I, I don't understand how that that process works. But I guess that's you know the ego of of a, of a professional athlete sometimes, where you know their their reality may be a little bit different than what the team sees. Um, and, so and Ryan, the, Jensen,
1: Ryan Jensen just got, I think it was 10.5 APY. So essentially the top center on the market gets about what Mike Pouncey was making. So yeah, yeah. insanity.
0: Yeah, yeah, Jensen got a lot. And uh, so I thought it was a nice job of Miami um, to make the move for, for Daniel Kilgore. He was a guy, you know, I'm not too in-depth, in-depthly familiar with Kilgore um, from what I've read about him, from the, the numbers that he's given up. Um, he seems like at least uh, no worse than an average center and and maybe a a better pass blocker than what Miami was getting from Mike Pouncey. Uh, I think that's a positive. I think that you're looking at spending half of the amount that you were spending on Pouncey, on Kilgore, and I think that you're looking at a guy who is most importantly available. You've got a guy who's not going to have chronic hip issues. You're not going to have a guy who's limited in practice. To one practice a week or or you know having to to flex to flex those days just to stay healthy you've got a guy who can be available every day who can work with Josh Sitton and laramie tunsel jesse davis juan james and these guys can be on the field together you know obviously knock on wood but like in theory this makes sense because you now have healthy bodies on the line that aren't going to be in and out of the lineup and be unavailable for practice so that matters like especially along the offensive line it, it really does count there's a reason why the Eagles have had so much success with their offensive line and the Cowboys. They have guys who are in the lineup for the most part. They, when they do have one injury, it's usually just that one position that they're having to fill. It's not several guys missing time. So I think it's they may you know Kilgore may not be the most talented guy individually. I don't think that really matters at center, to be honest. I don't think you need an all-pro center. I think you need a solid center, and I think that that's what he is. And there's a reason why the 49ers originally extended him um, now, they found someone that they might find is better because Weston Richbert was fantastic when he was healthy, um, but that shouldn't be a negative on Kilgore for his
1: contract. And one of the things I love about the Dan Kilgore move was the fact that I think I read from one of the columnists of the, on following the Miami Beat saying that the Dolphins actually – Started pursuing options to release Mike Pouncey or give him less money when they found out that Down Kilgore might become available because of the Western Richburg signing. So the proactive nature there of the front office to go ahead and make a move, get a basically lateral if not better player in the position for half the cost was really cool to see. So, but moving on here, Ian. Now you're something of a cornerback expert, which we've talked about a lot, and that in turn means you've seen a lot of wide receiver play as well. So how do you feel about these two things here? The Dolphins betting on. Albert Wilson and Danny Amendola replacing Jarvis Landry's production and your overall filling on the Dolphins' new wide receiver room.
0: So I really like the acquisition of of Wilson. I think that he's been a guy that he that I've really kind of liked from afar um, over the last few years. He's not really been utilized in a big role um, for the Chiefs. They just haven't really prioritized him. Um, But I think he's kind of like that Taylor Gabriel type of player. potentially for the dolphins where he can play in the slot, but he can also play outside. He's not limited to just being a slot player because he's got the speed to create separation. Um, he kind of fits in with the rest of the dolphins where he's not great against press coverage. Um, he's a guy that's going to have to win with the speed. He's going to create a little bit more separation early in his routes, or he's going to struggle with press a little bit. And so that's something that can be hopefully improved upon. And that's something that the coaches will have to continue to work with guys on. And that's a technique issue that uh, I think that that can be improved over time. Um, we see Kenny Stills being very good against press, and teams aren't even really trying to press Jaquem Grant that much because of his speed threat. So if you establish these guys in the right way, or if you use them in bunch formations, if you use them in stacked formations where you can you know, completely avoid press being possible, then you can really maximize these guys uh, at a different level than maybe we've seen in the past. And you're you're paying this guy for what he's going to be in this offense, not necessarily what he's been for Kansas City, because Kansas City didn't prioritize him. So I like the Wilson signing. I think he's going to be a really fun piece for this offense. Um, the Danny Amendola signing was a little bit – it caught me off guard, really. Yeah. Um, and looking at it through the lens of – and I, I kind of try to look at it through, well, there's no real quality tight ends available at the time. Um, in the free agent market, Trey Burton had already gone to the Bears and had gotten more than I think Miami was going to be willing to touch. Um, Eric Ebron later became available, but that didn't happen until later. And there's baggage with him too, so it's it, you know it's it, it's not like it was an easy decision or like Tony Gonzalez came available or something like that. Um, so I thought that with Amandola they looked at him and said, "Here's a true slot receiver." Yes, they I think they maybe paid a little bit more than what um, would have been preferable. Uh, just considering what he was making for the Patriots. But at the other time, it's a short-term contract. You can easily get out of it next year if he has just a disastrous injury-filled year. Um, It's not that big a deal. It's not a deal that's going to hurt at all if you have to move on from it. But he's a good player, and he's been a reliable player when he's on the field. He has a certain dynamicism to him. Um, in the slot where he can just create space where it seems like just almost instantaneously. Um, so it's, it's, it's where you need to be able to win in the current NFL. Uh, we've seen Ryan Tannehill have success with very good slot receivers. Um, he's a little bit of a different skill set than Jarvis Landry. He's not quite as powerful. He's not quite as um, durable, obviously. That's, that's the big thing with him. But he is quick. And he's extremely quick and he's going to be a, an issue for defenses. I think in the red zone, especially because he can separate so quickly. And so if you're going to play man coverage, Miami can now get you with multiple guys in one-on-one situations where they can win pretty consistently. Um, so I, in the totality of it, if you're going to use um, Amendola as almost like a, in a, not necessarily as a tight end, but is the de facto tight end, the, the de facto receiving tight end, especially um, between the 20s, and then not in jump ball situations in the red zone, but maybe in those one-on-one quick slants, quick flat routes, um, crossing routes, you can use him as that fourth receiver, um, which sometimes is a tight end, which you know used to be Charles Clay. So you can use him in that type of role and have success with him. And it'll be interesting to see kind of how they address the tight end position after that. But um, you know, I thought it made sense um, when you kind of take a step back from it and look at it from that angle. Because at face value, some people may be saying, well, they just invested you know, $12 million, $14 million into slot receivers, but really that's not necessarily fair because I think Wilson will prove to be more than that. And I think Amandola is a very specific type of weapon that they can use.
1: And that's kind of a misconception when it comes to ways to score touchdowns down in the red areas. You don't have to have a big body necessarily. It's, it's one way to do it, but there's more than one way to skin a cat, so to speak, and you can do it with quickness too, something all these guys offer in spades. And I kind of almost view it like, I love to make baseball references or analogies, and almost like the Billy Bean stance. Not in the sense that they're paying less money necessarily, but they're going for more efficiency and guys that can produce more with less targets, rather than having the volume numbers or like a high batting average or a lot of home runs, whatever it is. These are guys that are going to get on base and keep you keep the chains moving, keep you on schedule, and hopefully keep that defense off the field a little bit. But we're going to talk about defense on the other side of the podcast here, Locked On Dolphins podcast at Wingfield NFL at Locked On He is Ian Warden at NFL Film Study. We're back in the Lockdown Dolphins podcast, joined by Ian Wharton of Bleacher Report at NFL Film Study on Twitter, and Ian, my buddy, and I, Kevin Dern. He comes on the podcast quite a bit at Kevin MD4 on Twitter. We talk about the Dolphins' hope of sort of recreating the, the Philadelphia Eagles' defense or defense with a wide nine alignment there. And obviously losing their Fletcher Cox and Dominican Sioux, so to speak, is a step in the wrong direction. But now they are too deep at both defensive end spots. And I thought re-upping William Hayes was one of the most underrated moves of the offseason so far. So what are your thoughts on this defensive line group and the plan to build a defense that can play with a lead?
0: It's definitely a, a unique group. And I mean, their cap allocation to the position is extremely unique. Like that is something that I don't really know that we've seen um, we, we see a ton of across the league. Like I think something like four of their top salaries are at the defensive end position. Um, four of like their top like eight or something. It's, it's something that's kind of eye popping whenever you see it. Um, I don't remember the specifics, but it's it's a good unit. I mean, the, the question is what are what exactly are you going to get from Cam Wake and Robert Quinn? And I think that those two guys are going to really determine how much you're going to get bang for your buck out of it. And I mean, wake was great last year. We know that he had a almost like surprisingly good year. Um, at some point you're just kind of like, can this guy keep doing this? It's (laughs) just ridiculous. Um, Quinn, I think is a little bit more of a wild card. It's definitely a better system fit for him, uh, to be back in a four three full time. He's, I think he's still got the speed. I just wonder if he's going to consistently still be that guy. Does he constantly have that acceleration and that explosiveness and that finishing ability? Um, and if he does still have it, how come that didn't necessarily translate all the time over the last couple of years? But, um, in theory, he's a talent worth risking and he's a talent worth kind of rolling the dice on. Um, so those two could be potentially explosive. And then the depth is definitely strong. I mean, Andre Branch to be a third or fourth defensive end is much more fitting for him. We look beyond the salary. Yeah. You cut his snaps, and he makes a lot more sense on any roster. Um, it's going to hurt him to not be playing next to Sue. Um, you'd probably want him playing whenever Cam Wake is in the game um, on non-third downs. So like, if you're going to have... Branch in there, I wouldn't have him in with, you know, William Hayes necessarily, unless if it's an obvious run situation. Um, That way you can have Wake creating for him like he had in the past. Um, That's definitely Cam Wake's best um, attribute, where he can just close the pocket and create sacks for some guys that don't necessarily do as well on their own. Um, And we've seen that with with plenty of guys throughout the years. Um, You mentioned, you know, William Hayes. He was a stud last year. Uh, I thought getting him back was definitely a nice move. Um, I wouldn't mind to see if they still brought Terrence Fidé back. We said I don't think we've really seen any news on him. Mm-hmm. Um, not only as a special teamer, but he's shown you know some promise in limited reps. And then obviously Charles Harris. I mean Charles Harris is a guy. You know Fidé is kind of like an afterthought in that group because you know, but he was still a nice talent. But the reason why he's an afterthought is because you have a guy like Charles Harris coming back year two, and I think now is when you really expect them him to kind of start taking off and launching off his career. Um, definitely had flashes last year, disappointed with the one sack total, but there's no doubt that this is a guy that can play. The coaches have been singing his praises for a good reason. He's now got another veteran to kind of have around to learn from. And I just think in year two, year three, is really when it starts to click for these guys. So I'm really excited to see what he's going to do in in more snaps. Um, And you can really have some fun with these three rusher packages. Um, Although Sue's not there, you know, you could have guys um, in there and have maybe Godchow as the defensive tackle, and then you could have maybe Quinn uh, Quinn kind of uh, roll into the the three-technique position, and then you've got Harris and Wake on the edges. And so the possibilities are really fun and kind of tantalizing to think about. That's a lot of speed for an offense to deal with. So uh, it should be an above-average group. I don't know that it's going to be a great group this year unless if Quinn – you know, return to like 2014 form. If he looks at like that guy again, then then you know all bets are off, yeah. and then this defense is going to be totally you know revamped very quickly. Um, but that was worth a gamble for Miami to see if maybe he can hit that level. And if he doesn't, he should still be at least a solid pass rusher in a rotation which is exactly what Miami can afford to do.
1: Yeah, they're not paying. I mean, it's it's a big contract, but it's not premium bucks in terms of like what Olivier Vernon got or anything like that. So it's not right. the worst contract in the world. But you talked about some guys kicking inside and rushing from the interior. Charles Harris, you go over his film from last year. He actually had some nickel uh, inside rushes or I guess nickel three technique rush rushes on passing plays last year, early in the year, and then they kind of stopped doing it as the year went on. So I wouldn't mind seeing him get some more looks in there, like you mentioned, possibly him and Quinn kind of playing that that, uh, second fiddle in there as well, too. So, Ian, let's go ahead and get into your bread and butter and talk about the cornerbacks. You've been done with the Dolphins' corners for some time now, I believe, and I wanted to ask you kind of how they stacked up in your cornerback rankings, both as a group and as individuals.
0: Yeah, so um, I'll start with as a group. So, like, I, I was able to kind of compile everything Um, and people will see this when it's out, I I compiled the totality of, like, the team routes, not only um, by, um, like, press coverage, off-man coverage, kind of combined them. I also factored in the slots and how well the slots did. Um, And then I also broke it up by, like, statistics as well, like how many uh, targets, how many receptions, how many yards, blah, 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 all that type of stuff. So it's it's basically, like, this huge database of team information. And so the Dolphins just kind of looking at so the two outside – well, I should say three outside corners that Miami heavily relied on this year, Alteron Berner, um, Xavier mm-hmm. Howard, and Cordrea Tankersley, those guys cumulatively – so I look at it as far as like success rate and being, quote-unquote, in position, which to me is at the apex of the route, like at the cut or at the moment where like the offense should be throwing the ball, whether they're targeted or not. Um, and there's kind of a range there. It's not like a specific moment always. Um, especially on routes that don't break, like a go route or like a, a crossing route. It's really just best judgment, um, but usually within an arm's length. you got to be within an arm's length, the receiver. That's what most coaches kind of view as staying in position, staying in phase, and, and being where you need to be to challenge at the catch point. Um, so Miami ranked 22nd overall, so a little bit below average. Um, now that was also missing a starter for half the year. That was starting um, Byron Maxwell for a couple games. That was with, you know, Xavier Howard's ups and downs, too. And that was with a very young unit overall. Um, So kind of like comparatively, you're looking at like the Houston Texans and the Seattle Seahawks. Those teams were right around Miami as well. Um, I would say that their situation was actually much worse. They want Miami's was because they were relying on some veterans, and those veterans didn't necessarily, you know, meet the situation as well as Miami's did. Especially for the cost, Miami's are dirt cheap, whereas the Texans are paying, you know, oodles and oodles of money for a below average group. So um, cumulatively, I thought the outside corners were probably a little bit below average where you wanted to see them. Um, looking at the slot positions, that's. For the Dolphins, at least, it's going to mostly be Bobby McCain. Uh, They're well above average in that right break. Uh, McCain ranked as a top five corner for me um, in the slot, which I was a little bit surprised to see him that high, but Miami also asked him to do a lot more as the year went on, and so I I thought that he responded really, really well for that. We kind of talked about that in the past. So cumulatively, I'd say it's probably like an average group, especially projecting into 2018, and we've seen some of the changes across the league. Some of these teams got stronger, some of them got considerably weaker um you know Seahawks losing Richard Sherman's definitely not an easy one so um, looking at the teams like below Miami I would argue that basically none of them really got stronger most of them actually just stood pat and so that's going to help Miami too kind of comparably comparatively,
1: comparatively. And the pass rush could definitely go a long way in helping that too. But, Ian, I kind of had forgotten about Byron Maxwell, but you brought him back up, so thanks for doing that for me here. It was a, not a fun two-year span <laughs> there with him. But let's get you out of here, Ian. But before we do that, real quick, I want to get your short list for the 11th pick in the draft for the Dolphins and your, and your uh, let's call it the gun-to-the-head pick. Who are you taking with that 11th pick in the draft? Yeah,
0: so um, definitely, you know, it's, it's always kind of hard whenever you're picking out of the top 10. I, I think we're going to see the QBs go early. Um, And so then it just kind of becomes, you know, positional value. And I think that the Raiders are going to be a really interesting team to watch in all of this because John Gruden's kind of bringing, you know, he talked about bringing football back to 1998. And he has been. Like, (laughs) he literally is doing that. And I think that that's that's probably not a good thing for the Raiders franchise. But um, that may not be good for Miami because I think that for Miami, they're going to be looking at guys like Vita Vea. Um, I think he just makes so much sense um, there at 11. It just... Obviously, the fit without Sue, you need a guy there. He's just incredibly impressive on film. He may not be there, though, because there are other teams that could use that type of disruptor before Miami. Um, I would definitely be looking at uh, Roquan Smith. That's household name at this point. To me, he's a top three guy in this draft. Um, he's a little tiny bit undersized, I guess, if you want to go by traditional terms, and especially if you're going to stand him next to uh, uh, Tremaine Edwards from from Virginia Tech. Um, But I don't really care. I I just, I don't. Like Roquan is so good. He's so instinctive. He is a phenomenal player. Um, If you put him in the middle of the Dolphins defense next to to Raquan McMillan, I think that you're really going to be happy with the next, you know, five to ten years with those two out there just flying around. Um, McMillan can kind of be a little bit more of his more natural position. Um, I think he can be a great middle linebacker, but I think if you could put him maybe on, like, the strong side, He'd be even a little bit better, but you definitely have those two as your nickel linebackers, which would be just an ideal pairing um, as far as stopping the run and defending the pass. So um, I think Roquan would be my number one target. Um, Vita Vea would be my number two target. Things be- things become really interesting after that. Like and I'm not I'm not even 100 percent sure where I would want to go with the team if those two guys are off the board. Like unless if you get lucky and a guy like Minka Fitzpatrick is off the board, um, you know if he's available, I definitely take him. I think you start to talk about Derwin James if Derwin is available. Um, I think he's more of like a pure talent play, mm-hmm. and that's okay. I'm okay with that. Like you can make it work within the defensive scheme. It kind of you you just it just depends on how the board falls because do I am I passing up um, Derwin James or am I or am I taking Vita Vea? You know if those two guys are both on the vote on the board, I'm going to value Vita Vea a little bit more because it fits the need a little bit more. But if Vea is off the board and it's Derwin, it's like okay. He is an upgrade on what they have. He's a dynamic player. He should continue to get healthier. We've seen with his workouts, his athleticism matches the tape. So there's a lot of stuff that he checks the boxes of it there. Um, I think the wild card position is maybe corner. Um, I would be surprised, I think, if they went that early on corner. But if all those guys I just mentioned are off the board, which is very well possible because those are the key positions in this draft, and there's not really offensive linemen to be pushed up, um, that could really help Miami. It would be awesome for Miami if a guy like Mike McGlinchey goes right before them, but I don't know that that's going to happen. Um, then maybe you take a cornerback. Maybe you look at Denzel Ward from Ohio State. Maybe you look at Josh Jackson from, from Iowa. Um, I don't know that there's like a true cornerback one in this class like there was last year with like Marshawn Lattimore. I don't really see a guy that's quite that good. Um, and I think that if you want cornerback depth, you probably should take a day two. I think it's probably a little bit better day two draft than day one. Um, for the position, but you're kind of dealt the, the cards that you're dealt. And this isn't really a, a terribly deep class with great talent. And so you kind of want to get lucky like you did with Laramie Tunzel, a little bit, where someone drops a little bit further than what you expected so that you can maybe get you know, one of the top eight players in this draft at, at number 11. And, and, and that happens. That happens every year. Um, the question is just who is going to be that guy, and that's where we're kind of struggling right now is to, is to figure out who's most likely to fall.
1: Well, the draft is only about 30 days away now, or, th- or 35 days away or so from now. So can we get you back on either before or after the draft and talk about it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think probably after would be ideal because um, once this cornerback book is out, I'm going to be you know slamming and, and cramming right. as much as I can for prospects. But we can definitely do that.
1: And then get yourself a well-earned vacation after that.
0: Yes, thankfully.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He is Ian Warren at NFL Film Study on Twitter and of Bleacher Report. Ian, big, big thanks for coming on the show again, man.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure, man. Anytime
1: it's always, always awesome to have Ian on the podcast. So big thanks to him for doing that. Make sure you guys check out his comprehensive cornerback manual coming out very, very soon. I will retweet that thing like crazy when it does come out. But for tonight, that's going to do it for the podcast, guys. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review. And check out the other Locked On Sports family of podcasts for all your local and national coverage of your favorite teams. Give me a follow on Twitter, at NFL. Follow the show, at Locked On Fins. And follow our flagship show, at Locked On NFL, both on Facebook and Twitter. And check out the number one rated blog in the Lockdown Lockdown Network at LockdownDolphins.com. I'll be back tomorrow with another show on the Lockdown Dolphins podcast, your daily dose for Miami Dolphins football.